Hi, this is Pastor Andrew here at Oak Ridge Baptist Church in San Antonio, Texas. If you'd like to learn more about us, you can check us out online at www.orbcnet.com. Or better yet, come by and visit us at the corner of Wurzbach and Vance Jackson in Northwest San Antonio. This morning we'll be reading out of John chapter uh, 20, verses 22, uh, 17, I'm sorry, John chapter 17, uh, 20 to 26. Let us please stand. God's word says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may be, become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me, and love them even as you love me. Father, I desire that you also, whom you have given me, may be with me whom, where I am, to see my glory that you have given me, because you love me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will come, continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. May Lord bless you hear the word. At this time, if our little children would go out with Miss Sharon, she's going to take you guys over to Children's Church. And I'm going to also turn my microphone on so you guys can hear me. How about that now? Is that better? Okay, good. Oh, Lord. God, I ask that you would be with me this morning as I preach your word to your people. God, I ask that your word would be living and active in the lives of the people here. That as we study your word, that it would transform us and change us. And that we would not be left the same as when we came here. Oh, Lord, be with me and in me and speak through me. Anoint me with your holy unction for the preaching of your word. Where I fall short, Lord, carry me. Where I go beyond what you would say, Lord, cut me off. Above all, speak through me to your people. And Lord, I ask these things in your name and for your glory. Amen. So we have been going through the Gospel of John now, and, and it has taken us quite a while. As we have gone through the Gospel of John, we've seen many things happen within the church. Uh, we've had a global pandemic, which has been interesting. One of the things that we've seen come out of the global pandemic is that as it has affected 
everybody all across the world. It's also affected churches. And, and if we're honest, it, it hasn't been gentle to churches. Uh, by some estimates, 25% of those who had been attending before the pandemic no longer attend church. Now, some of them are online, but many have, using, have used the pandemic as an opportunity to drift away. What we're seeing is not necessarily a new trend, it's just the acceleration of a trend that has been in the works for quite a while. See, church has been on the decline for a long, long time here in the United States. And I know sometimes that's hard to believe, especially when you pass by huge churches with massive full parking lots. Sometimes we can look at those and think, oh, well, that's, that's the direction that the church is moving. But by most estimates... There are only 15,000 megachurches in the United States, or 1,500 megachurches in the United States, and that number hasn't changed since 2010. What we're seeing, many people believe, is a hollowing out of Christianity in the United States. This has led many to question church itself. After all, in a, in a world where we can have almost all knowledge and all experiences at our fingertip, where anything is one click of your phone away, why would you go through the trouble of getting up on a Sunday morning or a Wednesday evening and drive to one location to be around a bunch of people that you may not actually like that much? Church is hard, right? Anybody that's in, been in church for a while knows that church is hard. It's easy at the beginning when you're a new person and everybody likes you and you're just kind of hanging out by yourself. But as you get to know a group of people, something interesting happens. You get to know them, which means that you get to know them. <laughs> and as charming as I think that I am, as you look closer at me and get to know me more, there are things that will come out that will, that will begin to bother you about me and about each other. That, that's not the appropriate time for an amen, Chris. Just, that's cool. It's cool. Still haven't done your review yet, so that, that's okay. Um, so we end up with a group of people that is becoming larger and larger for whom church just isn't worth the trouble. It's not worth the trouble. They don't see the point. But what we need to understand and what we need to get across as a group is that, that church is not, a, is not an accident of culture or time. It's not simply an institution that we have inherited from our parents. Church, well, it's special. Christ loves his church. It's his body. It's his bride. He loved it and he gave his life for it. And as he is preparing to do just that in the passage this morning, we see him on his knees in the Garden of Gethsemane and he's praying for his church. Brothers and sisters, he's, he's praying for us. And the amazing thing is his prayer is a promise. 
A promise of glorious gifts and supernatural power to carry us through times like the ones that we're going through now. The first thing that we see in our passage this morning is that Christ is praying for the disciples who would come after him. His transition from praying for the disciples that he currently had and praying for his relationship for, with God, we begin to see here as he, as he cries out, I do not ask for these only, speaking about his disciples, but for those who will believe in me through their word. Now, what we see here is that there's the anticipation that there will be people after him. Now, now, to us, that, that may seem kind of like a quibble, like, well, why, why would that even matter? It matters because at this time, there was a, a huge belief that the Messiah would usher in the end of time. That, that when he comes to his culmination, that all things would be over, all nations would fall, and that those who were his disciples would move on to glory and everyone else would die. But, but Jesus is making this allusion to the fact that there will be disciples after his disciples. That, that there's going to be more ministry after he dies. That his death is not the end of all things. In fact, his death is the beginning of a larger, more robust, more complete movement. A movement that will be based on disciples Making disciples who make disciples who in turn make disciples all the way down until you find us. The result of the gospel having gone out into all the world. See, these new believers will come to know him and the Father through the testimony of the disciples. What's going to come is not an individualistic set of personal revelations. It's not something where we, we sit in our room by ourselves in the dark, cross-legged on the floor, seeking for truth intrinsic to ourselves, having an experience limited to ourselves, being an island unto ourselves. That's not what Christ ushered in. After his resurrection, Jesus will tell his disciples, all authority on heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. See, the gospel that he's come to bring is one that has to be spread from one person to another person by going. In his sovereignty and his will, God has determined that human agency is important in the process of evangelism. And so Jesus is calling his disciples to go out and to be his witnesses, to spread his good news. To build communities of believers that are dedicated to doing the same Thing. One of the reoccurring themes that we find that in the Gospel of John, we've seen it over and over and over again, is that God is calling out a people for himself. And if you, if you go back to the Old Testament, you think about it, this has been kind of his theme from the beginning. As soon as there were lots of people on the earth, God went to one particular man and called him out of his nation. And raised him up as a family. And then when that family went down to Egypt, he went to Egypt and he called a people out to himself. 
And he said something interesting. He, he said, I would like you to be, I, I want you to be my holy people, my gedolah, my prized possession, the apple of my eye, that which is special to me. These are the sheep that hear the voice of their shepherd. These are the believers who have been drawn to the Son by the Father. They are the people who have ears to hear. Every one of these images and many more, we see God working to call a people out to himself. John the Baptist came to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. But this isn't going to be a people in the old sense marked by ethnicity or race or by shared culture. This is going to be a people that is devoted to God. Men and women who will respond to the call of God, who will receive the teaching of the disciples, the ones who will leave their families and their old gods will become the ecclesia of God. His great gathering, a word that we translate as church. Christ is praying for all the believers who will come as the result of the disciples' testimonies after the disciples' And they will be the church. I need you to understand this, guys. Being a Christian is about a personal relationship with God. We cannot make somebody else a Christian. As much as I want my children to be Christians with all my heart, I can't make them be Christians. Any more than my parents could make me be a Christian. Christianity is about a personal relationship with your Savior. But it is not only that. See, we, we have come to a place in our culture and in our time where we see our relationship with Christ as something that is personal and wholly individualistic, something that is just for me and not for anyone else, something that I can do on my own, by myself, in my own way. But that's not what we see in Scripture ever. Constantly, as soon as a person comes to Christ, they are integrated into a community of believers. And with those believers, they grow and they bear each other's burdens and they live their lives together. And this is right and this is proper. God calls us to live in community because God lives in community with himself. God has made us to reflect his nature, which is communal and triune. God exists eternally in community with himself, and we have been made to live in community with others. So he has established this, right? He has said this. This is what he's praying for. He's praying for this community of believers that will come after him. And he begins to pray for specific blessings for this community. And as we said before, he begins to pray and this prayer becomes a promise of the things that will come. He begins by asking God to bless the church with unity. He says that they may all be one just as you, Father, and me. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. See, Christian community is supposed to be countercultural. It's supposed to look different from the people around us because it reflects something that is incommunicable, something that is beyond our understanding. We serve and worship a triune God, 
And we've talked about this before. If you're new here at Oak Ridge, we believe in the Trinity. Most Christians believe in the Trinity. The Trinity means that our God is three persons and that those three persons are not the same. The God, that God the Father is not God the Son and God the Son is not God the Holy Spirit and God the Holy Spirit is not God the Father and all of these are still God. Are you confused? Yeah, me too. It's confusing. That's okay. There's some things that we're just not going to understand. We call it hitting the I believe button. Because it is the testimony of scripture about our God. It's how we know we didn't just make it up. Because you wouldn't make up a God like this. You would make up a God that looked like something that you saw. I don't know, like a bull or a goat or a snake. Right? That's how you make a God. You find something that you think is powerful or cool. You're like, you know what? I'm going to worship an eagle. Because it'll look so cool when I get it tattooed on my chest. It'd be awesome. If you have an eagle tattooed on your chest, I'm not hating on you. Okay, that's okay. You were cool once, a long time ago. But, but we didn't make this God up. This God revealed himself to us, and he is what you would expect when a transcendent being beyond our understanding reveals himself to us. Something weird that we can't really understand. And that's okay because he begins to show us parts of who he is. He is unity in diversity. Difference in union. A mystical combination of perfections. And so when we as a community mirror the Trinity, we should look different than the world around us. Because the world around us is built on radical individualism. It's built on the idea that I am a special, precious flower. And I believe that because Disney told me that in many songs for many years. And that my goal is to let my flower bloom. Just, just let it out there. If I could sing, I'd start singing right now. It'd be awesome. Right? The world teaches us that we are intrinsically perfect and awesome and that all we need to do is just escape from the bonds of that which encapsulates us and holds us down, that the, the ideas and old methods that repress us. But that's not what we see in Scripture. That's not what God teaches us. What God teaches us is that we're broken, that we're sinful, and that we have to work through our sinful brokenness in community. And when we do that, we reflect a God who doesn't look anything like the world around us. What does he say? He says that they may also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you've given me, I have given to them that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me. That they may be, become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as, even as you loved me. See, Christ is leaving the disciples and their future followers to echo the unity and the relationship with each other. And brothers and sisters, this world desperately needs that. It needs the testimony that there is unity and that, that there is 
perfection and that there is beauty outside of this narcissistic bubble that we've created for ourselves. For many of us, we still live lives in this way, in radical narcissistic loneliness. If you look at the world around you, if you cut through all of the fake happiness that you see, underneath all of it, you see people in a prison of their own making. The divided and hostile world desperately needs the unifying power of the good news of love. Right? We proclaim in our community and in our oneness that God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him shouldn't perish but have eternal life. This is why Jesus told us in John 13, a new commandment I give you that you love one another. See, our broken and flawed and faulty community, as, as, as messed up as it is, points to one who is infinitely better. Christ wants the church to be unified with each other as a testimony to the deeper, more profound unity within the Trinity. When we begin to do that, when we begin to talk about that, we see that the church is so much more than just a place that we go to be comfortable. Hear me, guys. I, I want you to be happy here. I, I want you to have a good experience here. I, I want you to feel loved and wanted and included. But, but guys, at the end of the day, it's not about you. This here is not about you. It's not about your experience or what you want. This here is about us reflecting, however badly, the unity and the love of the Trinity. That's the real worship that we do this morning. That's the real worship that we do on Wednesday night when we come together for Bible study. That's the real worship that we do when we get together and throw axes together in community. When we share food together when we feed homeless people under the bridge. We are reflecting the nature of Christ because See, Christian unity exhibits the glory of God. Christ declares to his Father that he has shared his glory with the church. Now, what on earth does that mean? Well, as we talked about last week, Christ said that his glory comes from God. And we talked about Christ is the effulgence of God's glory. He is the aspect of God's glory that we can see and not die. Okay, God is glorious, he is immense, he is powerful. Most of his attributes are beyond our comprehension. We, we can think we understand what something like omnipotence is, but we don't really understand it. We don't really understand omnipresence. We don't understand what it means to, for him to be timeless. These are his incommunicable attributes. We can't really understand them, but there are attributes that God has that he has programmed us to be able to understand. He is infinitely loving. And while I may not understand what that looks like totally, I can understand the love that my parents have for me and the love that I have for my children. He's infinitely just. And while I fall short of that over and over again, I know when I am wronged. And I know when justice is not there. And over and over and on and on. And Christ reflects the glory of God to us by showing the communicable attributes of God, right? When we look at Christ, we see a man who is perfect in his obedience, perfect in his love, perfect in his justice, perfect in his mercy. 
Those are the glories that God has revealed to Christ, and those are the glories that we get to reflect. He has shared that glory with us. We don't get to share the incommunicable attributes of God in Christ, at least not now, and at least not in total. But you know what? We can be loving. And brothers and sisters, to be in community, you have to be loving. Right? We, we can be merciful, and Lord knows to be in community, you have to be merciful and graceful and humble. Right? This is the place where we get to practice that. God has placed us in community, so we get to practice what it's like to be humble and merciful and loving. Every single day. This is a mercy of God. See, after all, community of believers is a perfect place to demonstrate the love of God towards sinful people. Christian community gives us the ability to reflect the glory of God's communicable attributes through community. And so we need to see that membership, participation in a church is an act of worship. We declare the unity and the love and the glory of God when we do this. As we said, unity requires sacrifice. We've got to suppress our desires for the good of the community, we've got to release our anger to forgive and forbear offenses. We've got to postpone our gratification. Look, some of you guys liked the songs we sang this morning. Others did not. Trust me, I'll hear about it. And yet, we forbear, right? For the good of the group. We don't always sing the songs we want to sing. It doesn't always look the way we want it to look. Sometimes you get a pastor in here that makes you stand up and sit down and stand up and sit down and stand up and sit down, and that's okay. We're forbearing to be together as a group. We need to do these things to die to ourselves and submit to each other in love, not for the not fake hypocritical love, but, but actual, real, transparent love. We create a compelling countercultural community that looks different from the world outside of this place. Guys, if we're honest with ourselves, part of what's happening in our country today is that we had lots of people that were in the church that should not have been in the church. We had churches that looked exactly like the world outside of the church. We had a culture that identified as Christian and was not. And in his mercy, God is drawing a stark line between that which is inside the church and that which is outside the church. And our lives here have to look like that, but not just our lives in this church building, right? God has called us into a multiplicity of communities. In this church, there are smaller communities. There are Sunday school classes in this church. Our relationships within our Sunday school classes need to be marked by Christian unity and love. And the smaller our communities, the more loving and more intimate and more transparent our relationships can be. We're not a super demonstrative church here in a worship service. We get some amens every now and then, okay? 
but we're not going to share and communicate in here. Nobody's going to stand up and really pour their heart out in here, or they tend not to. But in our Sunday school classes, we can. We can be transparent. We can be real with each other. We can share the struggles that we face. And as our groups get smaller, we can become more intimate. But see, our church is made up of, of members, and we've got Sunday school classes, and then we've got families within our church. And, and brothers and sisters, I want to ask you, are your marriages testifying to the unity of God? Do you view your marriages as an act of worship? Or are they something to be stepped into and out of at convenience? Does the commitment that you have towards your marriage reflect the never stopping, never ending, always and forever love of God towards his people? Or are there things that are deal breakers and escape clauses for you? See, what we do in our marriages more and more will demonstrate to the world what we actually believe about God. This should change also the way that we view our children. Do we view our community with our children as an opportunity to reflect the glory of God? See, if we really believe that we are parenting as an act of worship to reflect the nature of God, it's going to change the principles by which we govern our children. They should match the principles that God has for us. Look, God loves us and pro provides for us, but he cares more about our, our character than he does about our comfort. Do you do the same? Do you care more about the character of your children than you do about their comfort? Do you, do you care more about the state of your kids' souls or, or the state of their education? I'm speaking to myself here. I come from a long line of education worshipers. Do you want your kids to be successful or godly? But more than this, do you reflect a God of mercy to your children? And this changes, right, as they get older. I'm noticing this. The way that I parent my little kids is different from the way that I'm going to parent my teenage kids, and it's going to be different from the way I parent my adult children. We demonstrate the love of God in different ways. As children get older, one of the things that I've noticed, as I've seen in, in, in different families in the church here, is we get to reflect God's mercy a lot more. Right, his long suffering. Some of y'all got some children out there that have taught you what long suffering means. That's right. You tell them. Get them, Emerson. Get them. You te testify. Got a word. Got a word back there from Emerson. Get it. When, when we have children, when you have children that are 40 years old and haven't made a good decision in 30 of them, you learn what long-suffering is. That, that, that God is not over with somebody when they turn 20. That there's a journey that we go on. And so in your parenting of adult children, do you see it as an opportunity to reflect a loving God? Or as an opportunity to vent your spleen on people that you barely like? Oh, brothers and sisters, there is so much for us to do here. There's so many ways that we can reflect the glory of godly community in our lives. 
Do you reflect the glories of godly community in your friendships, in your work relationships? See, all of this is for a reason. And we see this as Jesus closes his high priestly prayer with an appeal to his father for a continued relationship with his people. He says, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Sometimes when we read John, it can get really complicated. It gets really arcane, and we're like, what is he talking about? There's a lot of different modifiers there. What is he saying? I want you to hear this again. I desire that they also, whom you have given to me, may be with me where I am. He's talking about when he leaves them and goes to his father's house, that his people would come to him. Christ asked God to allow the church to follow him into the presence of God. This church composed of men and women that have been given to him by God, he wants to come into the presence of God. He wants them to join him and to see him as he will be when he returns to the Father. He wants them to see his glory. Not his earthly glory that we were talking about. Not his communicable attributes. He wants him to go into the throne room of God and see God declared in all of his glory. To see Jesus transmuted to what he was. Now, now this may seem a little bit pointless and arcane to us. Right, kind of otherworldly. What does this matter to us? How does this give us hope? But human beings, brothers and sisters, are made to worship. God has put inside of us a desire for the sublime and the glorious. This is why we waste so much money on the Super Bowl halftime show. Have you guys watched the Super Bowl halftime show? What a joke. What a needlessly complex thing that is. And it is surpassed only by the opening ceremony of the Olympics. I will never in my whole life forget the one that they did in France. You guys remember the one that they did in France where they had the people on ropes and they were doing like an aerial ballet? It was the most bizarre thing I'd ever seen in my life. When I was a little kid. We desperately, desperately want something glorious. We try with all of our heart to find something, to make something glorious, to feed this need in our soul for that which is transcendent, and we always fail. We're always left short. It's because we're not made for that. It's an imitation. It's like when your kid is hungry. It'd be as if you gave him syrup instead of real food. I know that because that's what the Jimenezes did to my kids last night when they gave them s'mores for dinner. <laughs> Guess what? They came home and they weren't satisfied by s'mores. It's so weird. It's like marshmallows aren't a meal. When we drink from the fake glory and the fake presentations of the world that we live in, it's like eating marshmallows instead of steak. And so we come into the presence of God. The promise is that we're going to come into his actual presence and see what real glory actually looks like, a glory that we have been prepared for since we were born. A glory that, if we are not changed, will kill us on the spot because we are like moths drawn to a flame. We desire something that would kill us. 
But the promise that we find in Christ's prayer is that one day we will see his glory and the glory of God. As Paul said that now we see dimly through a mirror, but then we will see face to face. We will know and be known. And to do this, we will be changed. His glory will be given in part to us so that we can enter into the glorious presence of God and live in community with him for eternity. And when the the sordid, dark, broken life that we find ourselves in now seeks to overcome us and overwhelm us, we have to remember that that is the destination for Christ's church. To live transformed lives in glory in the presence of God for eternity. On that day, we will experience the eternal love of the Father. I want you to think about what that day will be like. When we see God and Christ, when we know that everything that we were told is true. Because that's the danger, right? We find ourselves in the world that we're in, and there's a part of us. Deep down inside, when everything's going sideways and everything's falling apart, wondering, is this actually true? Is Christ actually real? Or is this just a figment of my imagination? And in faith, we put those doubts aside, but everybody has them. But there will come a day when we will come into the presence of the living God and all of those doubts will be removed. All all of the all of the snide comments from all of the atheists and the God-haters will pass away. When everything we've suffered for the sake of the gospel is redeemed and every question gets answered. You ever ever have that feeling where you're right? Where you you, you figured something was going to go a particular way and you you made a decision based on it it and it turned out to be true? There's times, I'm not right often, but there's times, there's times when I, when I think about something, when I'm looking at that, that washing machine that I think I can, I can take apart on my own and fix because I watched a YouTube video about it, and Mike Edwards says, mm, I wouldn't do it. <laughs> And then I watched the repairman fix it, and I realized there is absolutely no way I could have done that on my own. That is a pale shadow of the satisfaction that we will have when we come into the presence of God. This is what we are being prepared for on earth for the moment that we can share in the glory of Christ in the presence of God. And until that day, we spend our lives being changed and perfected and changed into the likeness of Christ. Christ prays his prayer as a promise for his church to be a place where we encounter and are changed by the knowledge of Christ. Not not once and done, but continuously as Christ reveals himself to us corporately and then individually through his scripture and his word and prayer as he reveals himself to us through the the actions and the work and the wisdom of each other. Brothers and sisters, when we are in the church of God and we are bearing each other's burdens, we are in the presence of Christ and he is communicating with us. 
So often people will come and say, well, how do I know what the will of God is for my life? And, I'm, and, and I'll tell them the will of God is discerned. And it's discerned in community. You, you want to know what the will of God is for your life? Enter into community and allow the people around you to reveal it to you. God will put wise people in your life who will testify to you about what, your, what his will is for you. As you live your life and people say, wow, brother, you are gifted at showing mercy to people. Wow, brother, you are, you're, you're a gifted teacher. Why don't you teach a Sunday school class? Wow, sister, you are, you are a powerful woman of prayer. God reveals to us truths about who we are through the testimony of the people around us. See, despite the fact that Jesus is about to leave them, he is promising them that he will continue to reveal the love of his father to his church. Christ promised that he will continue to reveal himself to his people through the church until they see him face to face in the presence of his father. So why, why is Christ praying for his church? Why is the church important? The church is important because it is the gospel made visible. I didn't make that up. I got that out of a book. But it's true. The gospel made visible is the church. The church is the manifestation of the good news. The gospel is a story of redemption. It's the promise of salvation. It's the hope of eternity. It's all of these things, but it's so much more. All of these things lived out in our daily lives. If you look at the mission of Oak Ridge Baptist Church, it's to equip ordinary people to live the gospel. Because the gospel is so much more than words on a page. It's the way that we live our lives. The gospel Life is meant to be lived out daily in community, and this community is the church. And when we sacrifice and we struggle and we forgive and forget and pray and participate in the messy and glorious life of the local church, we proclaim the life of Jesus Christ until his coming. Brothers and sisters, hear me. Our lives within the church are a testimony to the people outside the church. Now, how do we do this? Well, the first thing is you have to believe. You cannot become a part of the body of Christ until you are in Christ. You cannot join a church by being born into one. You can't join a church unless you are born again in the blood of Christ. Until you make a commitment to follow him as your Lord and your Savior. As you become new and changed. But see, it's not enough simply to believe and be saved. That's the beginning of a process that extends through the rest of your life. See, once you believe, you need to belong. You need to make the commitment. You need to join a group of believers and pour your life into them. We have a, a sign that we put up that says, if you want to grow, put down roots. You can't just drift along. You, you, you can't just like sample from one place and another eternally trying to find that one place where you fit. 
That one perfect place where, where everything works and the music is just right and the people are just the appropriate mix of old and young and new and rich and poor and, and you find this one perfect group of people that you can fit into. Guess what? You're not perfect. Ain't no perfect church because they're made up of people like you. And you take a bunch of imperfect people together and you cram them in a box and don't run the AC at the appropriate temperature, they don't get better. It's just more scope to be imperfect. And so you find an imperfect group of people that are united around the perfect gospel and you dig in there. You build your life there. You commit there. You say, I'm going to fight it out on this line and the devil's not going to drive me away. I want to put this challenge out there to everybody in this room. If you have not joined a church, you need to join a church. Now, I'd love it if it was this church. But if it's not this church, it needs to be somewhere. Please, please do not let this church be the place that you go to hide from your commitment to some other church. I want you to join here or I want to help you find the place you need to be. So as you attend this church and as you come here, you're going to hear me at some point say, hey, have you thought about joining the church? And if, and if you feel like there's this, if you get this feeling in your heart, like, man, this pastor's always trying to drag me into more and more stuff. That's because you're perceptive. I totally am trying to do that. I want this church to be the center of your life. Not because we're a cult, but because we're a community. I want you to believe and I want you to belong. But I don't want you to just believe and belong. As much as I love having you here on Sunday morning, keeping my chairs from flying into the ceiling, there are other duties here at the church. There are other things that I need you to do. I want you to grow. You know how you grow? You participate in discipleship. You participate in community with other believers. You attend our adult Bible fellowship. You, are told, you attend our discipleship classes. You begin to grow. You learn how to feed yourself spiritually. Because it's not enough that you believe or you belong or you grow. That's the beginning. The point is that you can serve. See, we're on mission here. We're a battleship, not a cruise ship. We have an objective and that's to storm the gates of hell. Okay? Every person here has been saved for a job. You don't know what that job is, but God knows what that job is. That job may be teaching children in children's ministry. <gasps> Not me. Maybe you. <laughs> Might be you, but I've never heard the Lord call. Maybe this is the Lord calling you right now children's ministry or youth ministry. Maybe you're called to disciple somebody else. Maybe you're called to be the hands and feet of Christ serving homeless people under a bridge when it's 20 degrees outside. I don't know what your call is, but you discern your call in community. You discern your call by submitting to brothers and sisters in Christ who love you and want to bear your burdens with you. Brothers and sisters, we are the gospel made visible. We are the church of the living God. 2,000 years ago, the Lord prayed for this church on his knees, and his prayer was a promise. 
that he would unleash the power of the Holy Spirit on us and that we would never be the same again. It was a promise that he would conform, that we would be conformed to his image, that he would show us the glory of the Father. Will you step out and accept that promise with me this morning? Let's pray. Dear Lord, God, we come to you this morning and our word is yes. Yes and amen. We accept the promises that you have made for us. We claim those promises and we ask in your name that you would make us united. God, that you would make us strong, that you would make your glory manifest in our humility and our love for each other. And God, that you would send us out on mission for you. Lord, if there are men and women in this room today who do not know you, I pray that you, <coughs> that you would reveal yourself to them. God, that during our time of invitation, that they would come forward and be saved, that we would get to see that. Lord, there, if there are men and women here who have come to know you, but they've never joined a church, that they've never been baptized, Lord, that they would come forward and they would accept baptism and church membership, that they would take the plunge and plant their roots deep here. God, if there are men and women who are members, but who have not been attending discipleship, who have not been growing, God, that they would commit to do that. And Lord, that all of us here will be called into service for you. Lord, I ask these things in the strong name of your son, Jesus. And it's in his name that I pray. Thanks for listening to this sermon, part of the teaching ministry at Oak Ridge Baptist Church. If you'd like more information about Oak Ridge, you can go to www.orbcnet.com.